Hey there, listeners. This is Mac Christian here with the National Land Realty Podcast. I got a request for you, and that is to like, follow, and review this podcast. Your reviews are going to help us reach more people who are seeking information about their land. We want to provide as much value as possible for our listeners, and you're a part of that. I'm also going to be reading our reviews in future episodes, so your review just might be a star on our show. Now, thank you again for your time. Listening to shows like ours takes time, and we appreciate you spending yours with us. Now let's get to it. Welcome to episode number 15 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. In this episode, we'll be talking about lake and pond management with David Riedel out of Solitude Lake Management. Solitude Lake Management is a national company and specializes in lake, pond, and fishery management, as well as water testing and restoration, erosion management, and sediment removal. Essentially, if you have questions on still water for your property, this company has the answers. David Riedel earned his Bachelor's of Environmental Science in 2009 and has been working in water resource management for the past 13 years. If you want to learn about pond or lake management, he's got the answers. Now, sit back and enjoy the show. So I'm sitting here today with David Riedel of Solitude Lake Management. And um, David, why don't you just tell me a little bit about how you got into this in the first place and uh, and tell me a little bit about your company and what, what kind of services you provide. Yeah, for sure, Mac. Uh, certainly appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and, and uh, your listeners about Lake and Pond Management today. Um, yeah, I've been in the industry for roughly 10 years now. Uh, I graduated college in, in 2009. I had a couple jobs. Uh, found my way to uh, Solitude Lake Management, where I've been there for for a little over a decade. Um, you know, I worked my way from from specialist to manager, and now I'm a technical resource uh, manager for the company, where I help to provide and act as a resource for those that need it, and um, you know, really help to uh, you know vet and and look at new uh, technologies and and innovations uh, for this industry. So, um, you know. Talking about what we do is, is something I enjoy doing, and, and talking to clients is 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 you know a passion of mine. So I certainly appreciate you you having me on. Yeah. So so lakes and ponds and the management of of water resources is a fairly niche thing. How do you how do you get into that? Hmm. Yeah. So I, I graduated, uh, you know, with environmental science. So, you know, I bounced around from different jobs and I would just always had an interest in, in being outdoors and working in or playing in and or around water. Um, you know, I also have a, a strong inclination for, for problem solving. And, and I think that's that's a great um, skill to have in this industry because every pond and lake acts a little bit different. So, you know, what works in one pond is not necessarily going to work in another that might be right next to it. So, so every little pond is its own little problem. And, and you know, it's, it's fun, fun occupation to have, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, so in, in just to be clear, so that the, the, the stuff that, that your team works with is usually if there's an existing body of water on a piece of land, you don't do the, the construction of that. Um, do you work with do you work with people that have decided to construct an area for a pond? Uh, yeah, so that's that's 
rare. Usually, you know, when a client comes to us, they're like, Hey, I've got a lake, I've got a pond. It's overgrown with something. It's, it's unhealthy. I can tell just by the way it looks, but what do I need to do? And that's when we come in and, and really take a deep dive, <laughs> pun intended, I guess, uh, to, <laughs> to, um, really find out what's what's going on but yeah we don't we don't actually build or construct ponds we will provide counsel if if um a client wants to build a site on their property as to like how to construct it for proper like fisheries management but that is that is a a niche service that that we provide and and then you know furthermore um you know in terms of like pond repair and functionality that's also something that we don't really do, but we, we work with businesses that do provide that as a service as well. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. We, we come up with, with listings and, and, and property owners once in a while that you'll see, you know, the bulldozers out and, you know, building mm-hmm. the wall and, and then throwing structure down to let, to let a water source fill it. But yeah, if you're right for the, for the most part, you know, people are, are purchasing something to have an existing pond. Um, so so what's sort of the process that you go through? I mean, you know, somebody has a body of water. They want to make sure that it's as healthy as possible. How do you, how do you go in and sort of make an assessment on what, how you would treat, you know, existing still water? Sure. Well, um, again, you know, we, we kind of wait for the client to come to us because, you know, we can't, there's no way we can you know, assess things, um, you know, fully until we get that phone call. But Usually what happens is, is there's been an issue. You've had an algae bloom, your, your weeds are overgrown. You, you know, per, perhaps you've had the unfortunate experience of a, of a fish die off. Um, so you're like, Hey, I, I need to do something to you know, turn my pond around. Um, and, and what we do is we come in and, and, you know, typically it's going to start with some kind of uh, water quality assessment to where we're going to grab that water much, much like a, like a blood draw at a lab, like, you know, a doctor can assess you, but they need to understand and we need to understand what's going on from a deeper uh, chemical analysis. And really what we're looking for is, you know, your nutrient levels. Uh, we also want to look for your dissolved oxygen levels. Um, and, and those are going to be uh, the main drivers of, of any of the uh, management strategies that we would, we would recommend from there. And then, and then, you know, kind of opens the door to all the options that are going to help you achieve, you know, what your goal is, right? Because I mean, you know, short-term goal is probably to get control of, you know, the weeds or improve the oxygen, but like, what do you want out of the, you know, the pond? And, and then, and then from there, it's kind of fun to play around with some of the um, you know, management practices that we can do to, to achieve those goals. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of your practices are more sort of oriented towards, I, I want to say sustainability, but it's more like more natural management as opposed to like a chemical dump, right? It, like a lot of what you're doing is, is more, what can we do that's going to maintain this, you know, for the, for the long haul rather than sort of the immediate fix. Is that right? Well, I mean, I don't want to knock uh, herbicide applications. That is certainly something that we do and, and do frequently because I mean, look, these, these herbicides have been you know, registered with the EPA Anyone that applies an herbicide within our company has been trained, licensed. Um, and then, you know, part of my job is to, you know, assist with that continual training so that we remain, uh, you know, licensed. So, you know, I don't have an issue with herbicides as long as, you know, you're not continually using them, reusing them and reusing them because, because, you know, you've got algae, you've got weeds. An herbicide treatment is a great way to quickly and efficiently take care of that symptom 
But what we try to do is come in and say, all right, what's the source of this symptom? Mm. What is the driver of what is causing these um, infestations? Um, so that's what we really try to focus on. So yeah, we, we, we apply herbicides, you know, all the time safely and, and effectively and really reduce the, the chances of any sort of off, off target um, issue um, by being trained and licensed um, and using, you know, appropriately EPA approved herbicides. Um, but, you know, really what we do is, is once we've kind of learned the pond, um, you know, had that water quality assessment, been out there, taking a look at it, um, and we can provide some more proactive and long-term uh, management solutions. Gotcha. So, so when you're looking at that, it, what it sounds like is with, with an herbicide or something like that, you, you go in and you're looking to take the environment as close to zero as you can. So you have a, like a kind of a, kind of a fresh start to be able to sort of build up and get something to be managed. Um, what do the solutions look like? I mean, you know, obviously dumping, you know, chemicals into a pond or something like that is going to be sort of heavy handed, but sort of these long-term sort of fixes that that you guys consult on, you know, between aeration or, or weed management sort of what's that process look like? Well, there's many, uh, long-term really pretty broad questions. You know, I, I've been doing this for you know, about a decade now and, and I've seen trends um, and, and really what I've, I've come to learn and, and what the industry is all about is, is nutrient management because that is the ultimate driver of, of an imbalanced pond. If you've got elevated nutrients, that's that's like fuel to the fire for your algae and weed growth. Right. So, yeah, you're you're going to treat that algae, the algaes and weeds. But if you still have that fuel there, it something else is going to take its place. So, so we really want to come in and say, all right, how do we cut off that internal nutrient recycling as well as external nutrient recycling or inputs? I should say because. You know, if, if you got a pond, it's kind of like a house on fire, right? And if you're still pouring fuel on it, you're never going to get control of, of that fire. You got to cut off that, that fuel source. So, so that's really what we try to do is, is ID, you know, why you have issues and then solve them from there. So, you know, aeration is a great first line of defense um, in a pond or a lake um, because as ponds age, they, they accumulate sediments, they accumulate muck, they accumulate leaf litter, and all that stuff falls to the bottom of the pond. And that's like your organic matter accumulation buildup. So that's going to keep coming in year after year after year. And the process that your pond does to try to digest and um, reduce that, that muck utilizes oxygen. So every pond has a, has a way of, of naturally absorbing um, oxygen uh, via atmospheric deposition or wave action, although that's not really a huge input on lakes and ponds. So it's really like your pond only has so much, so much oxygen it can put in, but over time, the demand increases. So you have a, a constant or even lessening supply coupled over the years with an increasing demand. Right. So, so your oxygen levels are going to reduce as a pond ages. So you need to go in there and say, okay, how do I 
supplement that that difference. Um, and that's what we consider, you know, supplemental aeration. And there's many different types of aeration uh, management um, tools that you can use. Um, a, a good a good first line of defense is what we call submerged diffused aeration. Are you familiar with that at all? I am not. <laughs> okay. Well, that is a cabinet that holds compressors, air compressors that sits on on your shore, and then um, you know through some sort of self weighted tubing. Um, through the on, across the bottom of your pond goes to like a diffuser base that has like two or three or even five discs on them. They're rubber membrane discs and they've got thousands of holes poked into them. So that you're pumping that air from the surface, injecting it through the tube and it, and it then goes through the diffuser. And that's going to cause the water to, to circulate with the help of that, that air. So it's a very efficient way of circulation and providing circulation to your pond. And you're not actually injecting oxygen into the water. That's a misconception. You're just increasing your pond's natural ability to absorb more oxygen. Is that because so, you're disturbing the water underneath and it's able to absorb that way? Well, it's actually you're disturbing the water at the surface. So oh, you're okay. creating more you're creating more flow at the surface. But but yeah, the, the bubbles start at the bottom. And then and then you know another benefit of the submerged um, diffused aeration is that it's going to cut off you know thermal stratification, uh, which happens you know naturally during the seasons. Um, and then you know the the low, cooler water is going to be low in oxygen at the bottom. You know, you see this all the time, and, and there are ways that we can test for that. And like I said, that that accumulated muck on the bottom holds a lot of nutrients and the lower that your oxygen levels at that water sediment interface, the more ability that, that, um, that muck has to release those nutrients. So by putting in submerged aeration and you're oxygenating that entire water column, you're, that's one way to limit or mitigate the release of excess nutrients, um, internally. Okay. Is it a matter of surface area? Are you just trying to, like, is the aeration just increasing surface area for absorption of, of oxygen? Or is it, or, you know, because you're talking about how it doesn't directly inject oxygen into the mm -hmm. water. Is, is, what is the case with that? What, what enables the absorption? Uh, the, just the, the movement on the surface of the water. Okay. Um, it, it, you're increasing your movement. Therefore, you're able to absorb more water from the atmosphere into your, into your lake pond. And, and same is true with with floating fountains. I'm sure you've seen those. And yeah, yeah, that's what I was, I was. My head was there initially. So when you were talking about the pump system, I was. I I, my, I hate to draw the parallel because I'm sure you get it before, but it, it sounds like a tank, right? Where you're just kind of like throwing water in and, and moving stuff around, uh, or throwing air in and moving stuff around. Um, but yeah, the the surface surface fountains that you see all the time too. I'm, I'm guessing that that's part of it. Yeah, that, that's certainly another way to do it. They're a little less efficient because you're actually physically moving the water um, as opposed to allowing air to do it. So, you know, you can you can move a lot more water with submerged aeration. The, the only issue with the submerged aeration is that um, you really want some good depth. So you're talking about at least eight feet for that. So okay. if you have a more shallower water body, you're going to want to um, consider, you know, one of those surface or floating fountains. Or aerators, you know, I, I kind of group those into two different categories. Although they float on the surface and they have an electric pump, you know, some are designed for more aesthetics. So the more aesthetically pleasing, the less um, 
the less water it's going to move. So you're going to put a nozzle on it or some kind of some kind of diffuser plate to make it look pretty. You're going to move less water, whereas your surface aerators, your true surface aerators, are really designed to move as much water and inject as much oxygen as possible uh, to the effect of like I think it's like three pounds of oxygen per hour per horsepower. So you can really inject a lot of oxygen into your, into your water. And again, that's just one of those proactive management strategies that that we try to to implement. Um, in this industry. And it sounds like, it sounds like oxygen levels are one of the primary things that you look at as far as when you look at the overall health of the body of water, what, mm-hmm. are, what are some of the other ones that you look at? And I, and I want to follow up too. I want to ask, I actually, let me double back. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't want to get moving off the topic too fast, just because I'm curious. What's, what does the yeah. power supply look for sort of these aerators? Is it, can you, can you run something like that? Uh, you know, solar driven, do you have to run, you know, hard lines, you know, from, from a significant power source, what is what is that sort of what, what runs those? Yeah, so with um, your submerged area diffused aeration, um, there are solar options. They they are you know less powerful than your standard plug-in units, which is which is typically either one twenty or or two forty. Um, you know nothing crazy for those type of units, and and there is solar option. The other option with the, those submerged aeration units is that you can run a very long supply line to like a manifold, so you can put your compressor near the power, run a very long. I think it's like up to a thousand feet. It depends on the manufacturer. Oh wow! You can run a, a very long line from where you actually have a power source to where your pond is, and you know. If it costs a lot of money to run a power drop next to the pond, solar might be a good uh, consideration depending on size and, and goals. Um, it is a little bit more expensive and, and does involve a little bit more maintenance considering you have you know, a solar panel and, and backup batteries and, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, solar is a, is a good option um, with submerged aeration. There are some suppliers that, that do manufacture solar uh, powered uh, floating fountains. Um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not criticizing anyone, but from my experience, I don't, I don't think we're, we're, we're a hundred percent there yet, but that option does exist. Yeah. You hear um, that a lot with, with, especially solar is like the technology is advancing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the, with the submerged aeration, I, I, I hundred percent think that that is a, a viable option, um, for anyone that doesn't have a, a close power source, you can't run a, a line, an airline from somewhere else. And so, you know, aeration obviously being like a first line of defense or, or usually something that you look at probably regardless of, of the body of water, is, is aeration just something that you kind of factor in as it's always going to be needed or? For the most part, yes. I think there are some circumstances as it relates to, you know, fisheries management where you, you actually want to maintain that thermal stratification for some cooler water species. But if you're really not that intense in, in terms of like what you want out of your, your fisheries goals, then yeah, for the most part, aeration is the way to go. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was just, uh, something I was thinking about, you know, sort of in prepping for this is, is especially for a fishery management. Like if you have a fish pond, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've got your, your, your trout species, which they like that, like 50 to 60 degree water. Mm-hmm. And yep. after that, you're moving to to warm water with you know bass or or you know mm-hmm. or something like that where they can tolerate that sort of like 70 degree you know and up. Um, how much does location have to do with it? I mean, you, it, it'd probably be fairly difficult to do a trout pond in Texas, right? Yeah, I think that would be pretty difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. 
Um, you know, there are some ways to manipulate water temperature uh, here and there, but yeah, you really want to stock some 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 fish that are native to the to the area so that you know you're going to get good growth. So you're looking at that's your goal. Not like somebody, yeah. like I said, like move to Texas and be like, I want to catch trout and, and throw trout in there and have them exist. Even, even though I have seen them tolerate higher water temperatures, but you're still talking like in the 70s, maybe high 60s. Yeah, you definitely would be be careful with that for sure. Okay, so so outside of aeration, what are what are some of the other things that you look at to solve problems? Well, um, you know, like I said, nutrient um, remediation is a is a management practice that that we really try to um, educate our, our clients on because that's the ultimate driver of why a pond is is problematic. So the two nutrients that we primarily look at are nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, because those are the limiting nutrients for, for, you know, aquatic algae and aquatic weeds, uh, primarily phosphorus, but nitrogen is a, is a player as well. The good thing about uh, nitrogen is that, you know, coupled with proper aeration and, and even some uh, beneficial bacterias, um, you can really move that nitrogen to a less usable form or even actually move it out of the system um, permanently uh, due to the, the way the nitrogen cycle works. Uh, with, with phosphorus, on the other hand, once that enters your pond, th there's really no biological pathway for that to leave. So oh, you okay. either need to you either need to bind it with something or physically remove it via like dredging or hydro raking or something like that. So um, there are certain um, nutrient mitigating um, Technologies, some flocculants, some polymers, um, other other uh, nutrient mitigating um, products that that you can apply, and I, I certainly would recommend um, working with a, a professional on on doing that to to dose appropriately so that you don't cause any uh, harm to to anything else. I can say it's probably fairly easy to mess that up if you're trying to DIY this thing. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I mean. We're, we're probably talking to some people that, that are more hands-on and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I mean, you, you can go out and you can, you know, spray a pond if you, if you want, you can go to your local, you know, um, you know, extension agency or, or farm supply store and, and buy a EPA approved algicide. And, and for the most part, it's okay if you're the owner to, to go out and, 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 and spray that. Um, I guess the, the, the issue is that if you continually have to spray or, when you're spraying and you see no effect, mm. um, how, then you probably need to consult someone to understand from the from a chemical standpoint why are these treatments not as effective as as they once were or as they should be. Um, so that's what we come in and we're like, okay, look, your your phosphorus numbers are off the charts, and you know, just for reference, we're talking about parts per billion here. Okay. Um, you know, it, it depends regionally where you are, but, you know, somewhere in that 25 to 100 parts per billion range is where you want to be with your phosphorus. And just the other day, I saw a pond in Georgia with a level of over 2,000 parts oh, per billion. How do you remember that? I, it, exactly. It, 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 a couple of things I'm, I'm thinking just from what you said. Um, so, so first question is, is phosphorus entering the system? Is that yep. that's something that just occurs naturally as sort of biological things break down on the bottom, or is that something that gets entered somehow into the system? Both. Both. Um, okay. 
Yeah, both. So, you know, you have, again, like I'm not anti-fertilizer at all. I'm pro, you know, good fertilizer practices because you want to establish good grasses and vegetation around your pond so that you don't have big areas of erosion that are filling in, is filling in even more phosphorus than, than if you didn't fertilize in the first place. So, um, yeah, there's external sources and then, um, you know, the, and then as those accumulate, then you, then you start to, to, um, have your own internal recycling of, of phosphorus. And that's where the aeration comes into play is that kind of helps to cut that off. And there are other management strategies like, um, there's a, a phosphorus locking technology that's, that's built into like a, like a clay type of, um, medium to where you can apply that out as a slurry and it sits over the bottom of your pond and actually will cut off that internal nutrient recycling and any phosphorus that wants to be released from that sediment is going to get sucked up and bound before it can get um, pushed into uh, and any sort of algae or wheat growth. So this is where you're talking about spraying the pond and that you're talking about a, a binding agent that kind of locks up mm-hmm. the phosphorus, kind of like throwing a tarp over it, right? Almost. Yeah. I mean, that that is a, a management practice, but it's like a a tarp plus where, where not only is it a physical barrier, but it's a chemical barrier as well. So where any phosphorus that wants to release is going to get bound up. So it doesn't affect you know, any kind of like biological population, like fish population that could be in the body of water. Well, uh, you know, that nutrient um, um, levels are important for, you know, fisheries health and aquatic life. So um, if, if your nutrients are imbalanced, you're actually, you know, not doing, uh, service to the aquatic life, right? Because there's there's certain you know the food chain, right? So you have your 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 green algaes that get eaten by you know your smaller fish, and those get eaten by the bigger fish, and they move up the food chain. Well, certain algaes that love high phosphorus, uh, blue green algaes is another way, or cyanobacterias or harmful al- algal blooms. I was going to say these are the ones another that you term. hear about in the news that are giving people rashes. Yes, like you know those those um, yeah yep. Yep, those can potentially be toxic and and do not generally work their way up the food chain. So you're just sitting that there causing potential harm, uh, you know, causing large dissolved oxygen swings, which then causes stress on aquatic life, too. So so I think by not trying to mitigate and um, adjust your your nutrient levels, you're actually doing doing more harm. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I keep on going back to this because you use the analogy right out of the gate was you compare it to uh, to to a fire, right, where you look at the three things that cause fire, right? You have oxygen, fuel and heat. And you, know, you add those together. You look to take away one of those to stop the fire. I, it's I, I think it's really kind of I want to say ironic that you're talking about water with the same principle as fire. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's really good. I, I actually had written down. The algae triangle, which is not my term, I stole it from a, a a past colleague of mine. Where you know you need three things for algae to grow: you need your nutrients, you need your sunlight, and you need temperature. Okay, there's only so much you can do about two of those, so that's why we really focus on nutrients. Gotcha. Okay, so it really is the same principle. You're looking to take away one of the things that causes it. You can't control temperature, probably. I'm guessing. You know, it's you look to control the other two. It's hard to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you brought up the case of this this pond that you just had in Georgia with 2000 parts per billion. How do mm-hmm. you approach that? Because, I mean, you, when, when you're looking to get it down to 100 parts per billion. Yeah, that seems pretty insurmountable. What, what do you do? Yeah. To something like that. 
Yeah, those are those are certainly like wastewater level numbers. Um, so, you know, we don't see it often, but we do see elevated phosphorus numbers all the time. And that is something that that we have to deal with. And, you know, like I said, what works for one pond doesn't work for the next and and so on. So that's why it's important to get those um, nutrient levels really uh, understood so that we can provide the best um you know, management strategies that, that are going to meet the client's goals. So, you know, for, for a pond, like I, like that one I mentioned, um, it actually was infested with, with duckweed. And um, that is a, a small plant um, that, that it, it looks like a very small lily pad. It just floats on, on the surface and really kind of blocks off that sunlight. So nothing else can grow. And it just, it's just, you know, it'll, it'll grow, it'll be thick on, on the surface of your pond, kind of growing on top of each other. And it's, it's, it's easy to, to control, but, but hard to uh, maintain control of, because if, mm-hmm. if you, st- again, if you still have those, those nutrients, it's, it's just going to come right back. So we're almost treating that pond weekly and really making no dent because that fuel, that phosphorus was so high that the growth rate exceeded our ability to legally apply herbicides to that pond. Oh, so, so yeah, because you have to wait a certain period of time between, between applications, um, per, per the label. Um, so in those scenarios, your treatments are not the answer. Treatments are not always, you're never gonna be able to actually treat a pond back to health, right? Because they're, it's short term, it's quick, effective, but you're not really addressing that root cause. So, um, how do we address the, the elevated nutrient levels? So, you know, you consider some aeration for the nitrogen levels, you consider some of those phosphorus locking technologies, um, which there are a handful at this point. I think when I started, um, there was only one or two. Now there's probably twice that many, or, or maybe even five now that, that all have different fits. Right, um, right. In the industry. So, you know, based on the size of the pond, and your and your phosphorus levels, you can calculate how many essentially how many pounds of phosphorus you have in a water body, right? Every pound of phosphorus is going to be able to support five hundred pounds of algae. Oh my gosh! Right. So this pond, <laughs> right? <that we're, laughs> this pond that we're talking about with the two thousand parts per billion of uh, phosphorus, when we calculated it out based on the volume of the pond, had twenty two pounds of phosphorus in the water column. And is so you do the math. Yeah, yeah, that's that's <laughs> incredible. So, so is that the point you brought up something like a hydro rig? Is that where you've got to like just get the bottom on out of there? To where none of that stuff is in there. The, the interesting thing is that this was just phosphorus in the water column. We didn't even do any sediment uh, analysis yet. Just existing in the water particulates. Just existing in the water column. Wow. Yeah. So, so we run across this stuff a lot where, you know, they're like, why can't you get control of these things? Well, we have really elevated nutrient levels that we need to address before we can even consider um, control. You know, what are some of these proactive things we can do to increase the health of your water body as opposed to just spraying your problem away? Right. Is it, I mean, is is that a possibility of like just scrapping the pond and restarting and refilling it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, possibly, but here's the thing is like when, when you're talking about inputs, like where's that water coming from? Mm. So that, that pond was actually receiving reclaimed water. 
from, I think, a wastewater facility, hence why uh, the nutrient levels. So even if you drain it and refill it, you're still going to have that high in, influx. So how do you address not only what's there now, but how do you address what's coming in? And these are the problems that we have to, to consider when managing you know, thousands of water bodies on, on a daily basis. And yeah. Well, and, I, and I'm thinking, you know, in the range of, of agricultural landowners, too, something I hear about often is is how cattle affect water columns and and sort of the runoff from from ranching cattle waste. Yeah. What is what, yeah. how, what does yeah. that do? What is like what you always hear about it, but you don't understand why, you know, what what sort of causes a reaction from cattle runoff to to sort of create those algae blooms that you see all the time? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, you, you know, you hear about the dead zone in, in the yeah. Gulf, and that is a direct result of, you know, that flushing down through the Mississippi and going into the um, the Gulf, and with the, the high temperatures and the high nutrients and the high and the high sunlight, like that's just recipe for for algae growth. And as that, you know, um, grows and then eventually maybe dies naturally, the dying um, effect. Uh, of of microbes eating that 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 matter suck the oxygen out of the water, so that's really what's happening in in your pond is 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 you have a super high biological oxygen demand caused by the the um, the, the wastewater of these cattle farms, right? I mean, super high biological oxygen demand. Just the oxygen just wants to be sucked out of that because you're you're trying to churn and, and break down that that organic material as fast as possible. So um, for those scenarios, yeah, you really need to consider, you know, you know some of the surface aerators, definitely, um, maybe even some of the, you know, newer emerging like oxygen injection tech, uh, technologies. There's a new technology called uh, nanobubbles that we're really looking into, which, which I find um, really exciting. It's, it's kind of like your next phase of, of oxygenation in, in ponds, um, which we can certainly talk about, but, you know, back to your, your, your question uh, of, of, you know, cattle farming. I mean, you know, if you were to, to own a pond, right. And, and you have a pond on your property, that would be one of the first things I would do would be to, to understand, walk around my property, understand the watershed, like where all the rain that falls flows into the pond. Um, if you have, if you're, you know, next to a, a cattle farm, that that needs to be something you need to account for in your in your management of your pond because you know you're going to get a high influx of very high nutrient waters. I was going to um, say that is that mostly just I, w- thinking my way through the process. It, it sounds like you know cattle waste is going to be manure, mm-hmm. which is broken down plant material, and then it, it in, as soon as it comes out of the cow, it goes through biological breakdown, and if that flushes into the water that breakdown is taking place in the water and that reaction takes oxygen to process. And so then instead of taking yeah. it out of the air, you're taking it out of the water once it gets yeah. into the column. And, and that, that waste uh, also brings in a lot of nutrients with that, which then further fuels um, more algae and, and meat growth. So, so it's if, a you're, if you're accelerant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if, if, what what do you see most often? Is it is it usually uh, people trying to to build a fish population, or is it usually just a pond for enjoyment and and they want it clear, or is it down to duck ponds and stuff like that? Well, you know, from a company wide perspective, uh, a vast majority of our clients are like uh, homeowners associations, 
uh, followed probably by golf courses and then, and then, and then into, you know, kind of your smaller uh, categories of, of landowners, ranch owners, uh, private, private property, uh, uh, pond owners. So, you know, you know, HOAs, you know, homeowner associations are, you know, typically have stormwater ponds on their property that they're responsible for maintaining. Um, sometimes they're more of a focal point of the community. So you have to manage them appropriately as a pond that's designed to capture, literally capture those nutrients that fuel algae blooms, but also, you know, maintain it in a way that's going to be aesthetically pleasing. So um, that's always, that's always a, a good challenge uh, to have. Uh, in terms of golf courses, I mean, you can imagine, you know, their, their, their main goal is to keep things uh, green. And in order to do that, you know what you have to do, to, you know, you fertilize, you got to um, do all that. So nutrient mitigation is, is, is high for them. Now, when it comes to your you know, private landowners and your, uh, your uh, ranch owners uh, and landowners, they, it really depends on their goals. Really, I mean, you know, one, it's up to them how what they want out of the pond. You know, I would say you do see an uptick in you know wanting a good fishery um, and wanting to use that pond as like you know a swimming hole or something as well. So you do see more like recreational activities as it relates to um, you know your landowners. Um, this sounds a little bit easier than like the the golf course or HOA kind of establishments where, from what you described, is a lot of what they're using water source for is to capture the things that you're trying to get rid of. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an educational um, opportunity uh, there for clients and, and residents to understand like, yeah, this is a focal point, but the purpose of this pond is is to capture you know, runoff from your impervious um, uh, landscape, uh, make yeah. it roofs and roads like, and sidewalks. And water and it's like, well, do you like algae? Because this is how you get algae. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's 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 a great opportunity to educate um, clients on on that cycle and and provide them uh, you know, practices to lower um, those nutrient levels either with nutrient mitigating technologies or aeration so that they can be a little bit more proactive and, and you don't have to respond to ponds that are 100 covered with with algae and weeds you know middle of July or at the end of June and they want it clear for July 4th so. Um, it's really, really what we're pushing is just to try to be a little bit more proactive. So when you're looking at a, at a body of water, I wanted to ask you sort of like a two-staged question is, is one is, is, you know, what's the process look like from sort of like, I'm, I'm guessing it's sort of like a consultation strategy implementation sort of process, but I didn't know sort of what, what that testing phase looks like. And then I didn't, I, I was going to ask along with that sort of what, what sort of timeline are you looking at for a typical cycle to get something under management? Um, so as a, as a uh, service providing uh, company, uh, we, we really try to get people on reoccurring um, frequencies, maintenance frequencies, so that we as the service provider can and see and, and prevent things before they get out of hand. So a lot of those um, clients that I spoke about, the HOAs and the golf courses, really like that option because um, it allows us to go out there, assess the pond, get our eyes on it frequently so that, you know, once we kind of learn the pond, we know it works, we can plan plan ahead um, for maybe the next year or give them recommendations based on, you know, what we've done to help 
um, improve outcomes of you know what their goals are, just primarily keeping their algae your weeds down and keeping the pond looking good and healthy. Um, in terms of turnaround time, I mean, uh, you're talking about like from the time we do the consultation to the time we're doing like our, our service or turnaround time from like how long it takes to maybe learn and understand and improve the pond. I would say both. Yeah. Right. Um, so as quick as possible, really, um, from a service perspective, obviously during the summer, we're, we're a little bit busier. So if, if you know you have a pond that you're going to be responsible for maintaining, you know, try to get that set up before spring so that, you know, we're not busy because this is a very uh, cyclical and seasonal uh, industry. Um, so we're, we're, we're much busier now than, than we will be in six months. So that, that would be my recommendation is, is the sooner the better. Um, in terms of how long it really takes to learn and understand a pond, I, I'd say it's probably like three to four months. Okay. Um, like you, cause you know, every pond is a different, I feel like I said that probably three or four times already. So like, how, like learning how a pond reacts to treatments, yeah. if, if indeed we feel like that's the best course of action you know, if they're not responding to treatments and we're like, okay, maybe we need to adjust how we're doing it. Or if it's still not reacting properly or still it's, you know, showing signs of, of, of concern, then we need to say, all right, maybe we need to take a deeper dive on this pond on your site while the other ones are probably okay. And I don't need as much attention. Yeah. And I, I, th I think the, the the clear thing there is to sort of like temper expectations. You're not going to go in and hire somebody and have your pond fixed in the next two weeks. You know, like it's going to take it's going to take months and months of sort of trial and error to kind of figure those things out. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, assuming that you haven't done anything, I mean, how many years did it take to get there? Mm. So point. Um, if we can turn a pond around in, in a couple months that's been neglected for I don't know, decades, I'd say that's a, a pretty fast turnaround. Right. Uh, in these times, some might argue that, but I, I think, I think that's pretty, pretty good in my opinion. And, and you brought up the seasonality and, and, but you brought it up in terms of when people reach out to you and it, you know, probably most, the busiest time obviously is going to be the summer. Cause when people don't see problems, they don't think about solving them. And then the problems yep. present themselves in the warmer weather what are some of the things that you need to look out for kind of bearing in mind the season? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And, and, you know, if I were to, let's just say if I were to have a pond on my property, um, winter, I think is a great time to um, like assess your pond for like its functionality because it's going to be cooler. And again, it's all very seasonally, uh, regionally dependent, of course, but um, you know, there's probably not much growing in your pond during the winter or at least we don't generally see that. Um, so it's a good time to, to look at your pond and say, all right, what's normal? What's the normal pool level? Like where does it normally sit? Does it rise a lot when it rains or does it, does it not? Does it flow constantly or is it pretty stagnant during rain events? So just understanding like how it functions and works is, is huge in terms of being able to manage Managed properly. I would also, you know, I, I, I touched on it before, but really understand the watershed. Um, look for areas of erosion. Look for like livestock, 
uh, areas? Is, is your pond flushing in from one particular area or is it all kind of sheet flow from all around? So understanding, you know, the, the watershed and topography of your land uh, does also play into, um, you know, how you're going to manage your pond. So take the winter time to really just learn how the pond functions, walk around it. Are there any holes? Or is there any erosion? Is it leaking? Um, you know, just really get to know like the pond from a, a functional and physical perspective. So that's what I would do. So when, when you're testing, it's it's not it's not just a matter of, of you walk in and test. It also matters about the timing of the testing. So like, are you experiencing a runoff period? Has there been a recent rain? And trying to like probably probably get there and test within those variables, right? Well, I mean, typically when you're talking about like water quality testing, you're going to want to do those um, in the um, the spring or the summer. Um, you know, spring I think is a good time. You know, things start to warm up. You know, maybe your ice starts to melt. Um, you know, there's there's you know, natural seasonal turnover. So you know, as as your pond shifts from winter to spring, that actually the pond is going to mix internally um, based on you know, water temperatures, um, and that's a natural occurring phenomenon. And um, you know that can that can potentially bring up some some nutrients from the bottom, and, and even sometimes cause a minor a minor fish kill, uh, which we've seen. We've seen seasonal turnovers cause cause fish kills, um, unfortunately. Uh, you're going to also want to look at your pond for like early season weed growth or algae growth. Um, is it a huge concern? Is it covering like 5% or is it covering 50%? Because that's going to be an indicator of, oh, I've got a lot of nutrients going on, or maybe this is just a normal spring algae bloom just around the perimeter because it's more shallow and we get more sunlight, we get more heat. Um, look for some submerged vegetation growth as well. Um, there are some certain pond weeds that can grow in, in cooler temperatures, and that is an indicator that, oh, I've had this stuff growing for years. And it's, if you don't, then that's going to continually add to the organic uh, buildup in the pond, which is, you know, talked about continues to fuel more, yeah. more nutrients in the pond. So um, if you do have an aerator or, or, or a fountain or something, and, and maybe you hold it for the winter, that, you know, spring is a good time to fire that up and see if it's running. If it's not running, I'll call a company to come and uh, <laughs> check it out and, and, and fix it. You know, in terms of the fisheries, it's important to you. Uh, that's a good time to you know, assess your fisheries. Electrofishing survey. Um, you heard or seen about those before? Oh yeah, the shocky shocky. <laughs> yep, exactly. So that's, um, that's a good good time to do that in the spring oh in the spring yeah that's and that's usually when you see it with rivers as well when people go in and like usually it's usually fish and game goes in the fish survey and they, and they do the yeah the treatment yep yeah so we do that for ponds and on a, on a large boat that's set up just for that to assess you know the health of your fisheries and um you know common question i get although I, i'm not really in, into the um fisheries world as, as much as, as, as others in this company, but, you know, we do have fisheries biologists. Um, we do have a fisheries team that, that does this full time. And, and, you know, one of the common questions we get as it relates to that is, uh, you know, what kind of fish do I need to stock? And before we even answer that question, we got to say, well, what's in there now? Like, <laughs> what's the condition 
of the fish that you have currently because stocking might not be the best choice. It might actually be removing some fish from the system. You're going to say if you have too many predatory fish in one system or if you have the wrong kind of predatory fish in some system, you could end up really out of balance there pretty quick. Yeah, or you can get a lot of fish that are that are of the same weight and and length, and, and you might be able to call some of those to allow some of those uh, to get to get bigger. Right. So that, that's definitely something to do to do in the springtime, so that once you've done that, the water temperatures are still cool enough to where you can uh, effectively stop. Okay. And so that, you know, all this to say, you know, when somebody picks up a piece of land or has a piece of land that has a body of water existing in it there are, there's a lot of steps that you can do to sort of get that body of water to do the things you want it to do. If you want it to hold fish, you can manage it to hold fish. If you, if, you know, if you want to use it for recreation and swim in it, you can get rid of all those nasty weeds. It just takes some work and, and usually some expert advice. Correct. So yeah, the goals of what you want from your pond are going to drive the recommendations, the management recommendations. So you know, you know, wanted to schedule this for, for, you know, the time that we have, and I want to give you an opportunity to plug your company, man. Um, so, <laughs> so what's, what's, uh, where's your best clients located? What do you work with best and how do people get a hold of you? Uh, you know, Mac, I would feel remiss if I didn't at least quickly finish out the rest of the year in terms of what you should look out. And then. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's I do will, that. Yes. I will, I will plug. I, will I jumped the gun there. Let's do that. It, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so like, look, you know, so you, you, you know what you, you found out how your pond works in the winter. Yeah. You kind of set up your pond in the spring, get the aeration running. Summer is either going to make it or break it depending on how much, you know, you've done initially. To That's going to show pond. all your problems is the summer, right? It's going to show all your problems. Yep. It can be, you know, a great time or, or a very bad time. So, um, you know, that's when you might have to actually call a company to come in with, with some heavy-duty application equipment and these, these herbicides and really know what works best on, on what type of uh, weed or algae you might have. And then, you know, just moving forward to fall, it might be a time to kind of assess how the year went and what, you know, recommendations and changes you make for the following year and to kind of set you up for success. Um, say that sounds like a lot of people i know where they use the winter to sort of get in shape and then you know you get swimsuit season shows all your flaws <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um but yeah um so again yeah i work i work for solitude been there for for, for 10 years i uh, really enjoy uh the problem solving aspects of, of what this um, industry brings every pond is its own little problem and I really enjoyed talking with with clients uh, and, and consultants internally and externally on, on how to solve their their own unique problems so um, I think it's all to do a really good job of doing that uh, I think we provide an excellent service uh, we are we are nationwide um, and uh, I'd like to think that, that our speed quality of service and, and price are very competitive so I definitely recommend people check out our website, solitude-management.com. Uh, it's a great website, got a great marketing team. Uh, it'll, it'll drive you to some, some solutions uh, in terms of like other areas to get information from, like your state uh, extension agency has a good, will have a good, um, I think, resource um, in terms of like where to go for help. 
and there there is a, a Facebook group actually. I think it's called like Lake and Pond Management Questions. If you search oh. that in Facebook, so you know I'm on it. There's a lot of other experts on it as well that that will help you know uh, field any questions that you might have. Determine uh, if this is something you want to do yourself or if this is something you want to reach out for for professional help. That's really helpful. There's Facebook groups for everything. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah <laughs> really, right. There's some really weird niches in there. Uh, <laughs> so are, so national, like you, you, how many offices do you have? Oh, man. Uh, we, we've got dozens across the, across the um, United States. Excellent. Dozens. So almost anywhere somebody lives, they can probably get a hold of Solitude Lake Management. Yeah, just go to the website, call the number on the screen, they'll direct you to to talk to sure excellent well david i i absolutely appreciate your time you obviously have a, a wealth of knowledge on the topic and and i can imagine that there's there's uh several of you in in the organization uh that, that can consult people and help them out with their with their pond management and their water management um so yeah thank you for your time today i really appreciate it i i appreciate it i'm honored that you asked me to be on here and if if there are any questions you get from it, I'm, I'm happy to help. Excellent. Excellent. We'll put all the links to, to your company details and, uh, and, and provide links to, to get people some information on the topic. Great. Thanks for the time. Yep. Thank you too. This concludes episode number 15 for the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing lake and pond management with Solitude Lake Management's David Riedel. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com. Hey there, listeners. This is Mac Christian again. Uh, you thought you were getting away from me. Uh, no, I just wanted to throw a little bit of a PS on this podcast. Be sure to like, follow, and review us on this podcast. Uh, it really does help people find us, helps people find our information, and helps us provide value to more people. Also, in that time that you should be uh, working and you're listening to podcasts on your headphones, be sure to check out Land Tour 360 at nationalland.com. Like we've said before, it's really amazing technology. You can see some really cool things on there. Everybody have a great one and thank you again for listening.